0: A couple years ago, uh, before we were able to move into our home, one of the, the major things that had to be done, uh, because of other things that had gone on, we had to replace the, all the kitchen floor. And uh, that seemed like, uh, of course, a bigger task than I was willing to take on. So I've got a friend who owns a flooring company, and he came and you know, mapped it all out for me and said, yeah, this will be about a two-day project uh, for my guy. So okay, so we set up the time and He comes and so this is, you know, the kitchen and it kind of wraps around to the the back door and then into the laundry room. It's all one connected floor. So I was like, okay, two days seems reasonable. He'll do probably, you know, half of it one day and then come back and do the other half. Well, to my surprise, the first day, he did not put down a single piece of the new flooring. The entire first day, a full day work for him was taking out the old, uh, it was like a vinyl, you know, sheet thing, and uh, so he pulled it all out, but that was pretty quick. He had that out, no problem. The rest of his day was spent preparing the floor for the new floor. He just has all that subfloor there, and he's sanding and, and, and putting screws in uh, loose places and getting the whole thing prepped. An entire day with no new floor down, you know? And I'm like, does this, this is really take a full day? Because at the end of the day, I'm taking pictures of this floor. There's, there's nothing to show. It looks like nothing has been done. But sure enough, come the second day, and I started watching him put down the new floor, I realized how important all that prep work was. We've got these little you know, vinyl tiles, and so they're, they're pretty thin. If there was any imperfection in the floor, you'd have seen it once the new floor was put on top, right? If it was bumpy, if it was loose, and there are some places that still squeak a little bit, thinking he should have put one more screw right there, you know? But it, he's got it all, he had to get it all perfectly right before he could come and put the top, the, the visible part that we could see. Uh, so often when we think about uh, our lives and what matters, we think about the visible. We think about the external. We think about the outside. And rarely do we think about what's underneath it. Sometimes we don't, we don't consider the foundations, what, what's underneath the external part of our lives, what's underneath our actions and the way we live and the, the actions that we take. We don't stop and consider the foundation, what's underneath it. I remind you of that. I was reminded of that, uh, the guy that came and worked on our floor this week, as we were coming now to the end of the book of Titus, as we've been going through this here in the new year. And uh, if you've been with us, you've heard me say over and over that this book is about how these things go together, that we are called to be sound in doctrine, and how that then leads to being zealous for good works. These are meant to go together. We have to have right beliefs right foundations a right understanding of god and right understanding of who we are in christ if that's going to lead to right actions to being zealous for good works if our desire is just on the outside the visible part it's really really hard to change it's really hard to be different it's really hard to ask people to change if we're only focused on the surface but if we let the bible speak to our foundation to our core to our deepest beliefs that's where change happens. That's the most important part. Many times we look to our nature and we just say stop. We look to our, to our actions. We're like, just, just be better, you know. We ask that of other people. Just, just quit doing that, you know. But if we don't look underneath it, many times we won't really be able to solve the problem because the problem is often in the foundation, not just in the external part. We have to have sound doctrine if we're going to lead to being zealous for good works. Last Sunday, as we had the privilege of celebrating. Baptism, and that was that was incredibly special. We we focused on the part in the middle of the section that Tom just read that we skipped over because we did it last week. Titus 3, 3 to 7. And that, that section is a powerful summary of the gospel. It's a powerful summary of the most core foundational truths about God and about who He is and what He has done for us. We read there about our foolishness, our disobedience, how we were slaves to various passions and pleasures. And yet God, in His tremendous mercy, because of nothing we did, but all out of His grace, He came and He saved us. He brought us out of that canyon, of that life that we used to be living. And He did it by sending His Son, who took our place on a cross, who went into a grave, and that grave could not hold Him, but came back to life, resurrecting, defeating the grave and death and hell once and for all. And because of His finished work, for all who believe in Him, we too can be saved. That's the foundation. That's the core. We have to have that at the very center. And if that is at the center, it changes everything. God regenerates our hearts. He gives us new spiritual life. We have been born again. And so we celebrate in baptism that new birth in somebody's life. And as we cherish that, as we come to Follow Jesus. We we know that we have this hope. We are no longer strangers. We're not enemies of God. We are His children. We have this hope of eternal life with Him forever. In the gospel, we go from being foolish, rebellious sinners to cherished and loved children of God. That is the good news. That's what we celebrate in the gospel. Going from death to life. We were evil and God chose to love us. And He brought us into His family. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the foundation for everything else in the Christian life. It comes out of who we are. It comes out of what God has done for us. And as Paul writes to Titus, who's going from from different churches throughout this island of Crete and helping them get started, he says, insist on that. Insist on the gospel. Verse 8, he says, the saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things, what he just said before, so those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. In the three letters that Paul writes to, to pastors, first and 2 Timothy and Titus, he uses this little phrase a handful of times when he says, the saying is trustworthy. And it's kind of his way of underlining and bolding and starring and drawing arrows to like, hey, this matters. He wants you to say, don't, don't miss this. And for example, he says in 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus Came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. He's saying, This is important. This is, this is something worth remembering. And he says that here about what we read in verses 3 to 7, the gospel. God saves us. He says, Insist on that. Make sure you're focused on that. Why? Because if you get the foundation right, it changes everything else. Insisting on the gospel will lead to good things. What I want you to hear today is that when we insist on the gospel, we'll be devoted to the right things. When we insist on the gospel, we insist on making the foundation right, it will lead to right things. As Titus is going to different churches and they're growing and whatever else may be coming, Paul says, never move away from this. Make sure that whatever else you're focused on, whatever growth strategies you may have, focus on the gospel. He says, we insist that this isn't optional, right? This, this isn't uh, a take it or leave it type thing when it comes to uh, the, the way that we grow churches. We've got to hold this as foundational. Uh, optional, op, there are plenty of optional things as a Christian, right? It's optional how dressed up you get to come to church. It's optional what, what kind of building you meet in. The style of music is even optional. There's all kinds of things that are optional, about the way that we live out our faith as Christians. But this isn't optional. We insist, we declare the central importance of the gospel. There, there can be a, a temptation to read the Bible primarily as a rule book, right? And, and maybe as, as kids, we may even tell kids, you know, hey, there's some, there's some rules here, some, some do's and don'ts. And that is an important part of the Bible. There are important commands. But the Bible is not primarily A rule book. It's not primarily a list of do's and don'ts. The the primary thing that the Bible is about isn't about what we do, it's what God has already done. The Bible isn't primarily about what you and I should do, it's primarily what God has done. Because the Bible is primarily about God, not about us. Absolutely, we have a response to who God is, but first and foremost, it is. Something God has done. If we approach the Bible as a list of do's and don'ts, one of two things happens. Either we, we think we're doing a pretty good job following those do's and don'ts, and so we get prideful and arrogant, and we start patting ourselves on the back. Or we look at that list and we say, man, I failed at this in every way imaginable, and we start to beat ourselves up, and we think we're terrible. In both of those cases, who are we focused on? Ourselves. The Bible isn't about us first. It's about God. When we come to the Bible, we can't pick out a a verse here or there and just say, this this is all about me. At first, we've got to come to God. We have to lift the foundation, God. That's what we have to start with. It's all about God and then how we respond to that. So as we read and teach the Bible, we've got to insist on this. That's what he's reminding us. Insist on the gospel. Insist on what God has done for us. And if that happens, we'll be devoted to the right Thing. So surrounding that, that part in Titus 3 that he emphasizes the gospel, he starts to lay out ways that this, this impacts our lives. That we'll be focused on the right thing. He shows us at least three good things that come. So last week as we celebrated baptism, it was really good for us to focus on God's work, that he saved us. And I kind of picture as, hey, we're coming out of baptism. Whether you're one of the, the people that was baptized or not, all of us, as we celebrate baptism, we think about new life. Now, what does that new life actually look like? Boots on the ground, like the way you live. How does our good life, how is it impacted by the gospel? The first thing is that the gospel motivates good works. If there's one phrase that that ties together our entire passage, it's good works. It's in verse 1, Titus says, be ready for good works. Verse 8, he says, uh, be careful to devote themselves to good works. And in verse 14, learn to devote yourselves to good works. So clearly, as Christians who believe the foundation, believe the gospel... It should lead to good works. Whenever I'm teaching people and talking about how to read the Bible for yourself, one of the things I always point out is look for these key like transition phrases, these key things that tell you something important is coming. So that is one of those really important phrases. He says, this, so that, this other thing, right? here's a purpose. Here's the reason behind it. Here's, here's what it's for. Do this, so that. That happens. So what does he say here? He says, insist on the gospel so that the believers will have good works. Here's a question. If you're if you're in ministry, if you're a pastor, if you're an elder, how do you get church people to behave? How, How do you get people to just live right? You know, what what are your options? You could you could scream at them, you could yell at them, you could whop them on the head with a stick, you know, you could guilt trip them, you could just demand it real serious. You could, you, could, you could be, you know, throw a pity party, you know, like, hey, why will nobody listen to me? You know? You, you can do all those things. Probably none of them are going to work. Or you could just tell them about Jesus. Amen. You could just keep telling them about Jesus. Because that's what the Bible does. It just keeps putting the gospel before us and saying, hey, if you really know this, it's going to change the way you live. If you've really believed in Christ, if, it's, if you've really deep in your soul come to know God personally, you can't help but to be changed by that. It's not going to happen overnight. It may not happen as fast as you want it. But if you know Jesus, if you truly believe in the gospel, it will motivate good works. It will lead to good works. Sometimes we, we think, you know, if I'm just stricter on myself, if I just, if I just work harder, if I just you know, ugh, get my act together, then I'll change. If they, they, I want them to change. If they'll just get their act together, if they'll just, if I just matter at them, they'll change. It doesn't work. We all know that. We've all tried it. We've tried it for ourselves. We've tried it for other people. Our heart has to change if our actions are going to change. If there are bumps in the foundation of the floor, there's going to be bumps in the tile you put on top of it. God has to change the, the core, the foundation for everything else to change. And the only way our heart is changed is by the gospel, by believing in God, by enjoying Him above everything else. If our heart is satisfied in Christ alone, that changes our hearts. And if we're not motivated to do good works, it's probably because we don't actually believe the gospel like we should. For example, if we live our whole lives anxious about everything, if we're stressed and never peaceful, then we probably have a low view of God's providence. Providence is a word that means God's in control. He is sovereign. He is in charge of everything. And He's good. He is ultimately working everything out according to His plans and His purposes, which are ultimately good. If you believe that about God, then you can sleep tonight. You can rest. You have work to do. You're supposed to be giving it your all. But you can take a break because the world's not spinning because you're working. God's in charge of it. He he can do it. He can handle it. If our lives are filled with anger, then we've probably never fully experienced the forgiveness of God. Because if we have experienced God's forgiveness, then when somebody makes us mad, we can forgive them too. Because we've been forgiven. And so we share that forgiveness with others. If 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 we've got a sinful habit that we just refuse to give up in our lives, we're okay with it. We're just going to keep going in this sinful lifestyle then we probably don't know the holiness and perfection of God. We don't understand what He has given with His Son on a cross, all that He paid to bring us out of that captivity, out of that sin. We don't know how holy and gracious God is. If we did, it would lead to a transformation. So many times we see the external, the top side, and we say, just stop it. And we can't. We we have to believe. We have to go to the foundation. We have to go, who is God? And why has He changed me? What what about Him leads to my life changing? If we believe the gospel, it will motivate us to good works. And he gives some specifics. Verse 1, he says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities and to be obedient. Man, that's hard. Our pride says we, we don't want anybody to tell us what to do. But here's... If we think submitting to rulers and authorities is hard today, try being a Roman citizen. This, and, and when Paul wrote those words, that government had no knowledge of our God. We probably have it much easier than they did. We like to be in charge. We like to determine what's best. And so our pride is, 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 has to be humbled if we're going to submit to anybody else. Obviously, God never commands us to sin. So there's obviously a limit on that. We're not called to follow somebody else that leads us into sin. But as much as it is within God's will and design, we're called to submit to the leaders and trust that God has put them there for a reason. Verse 2, he says, Be gentle and show perfect courtesy to all people. There is no place in Christian living to be rude toward anybody. We have all received a kindness from God that we did not deserve. And so to show rudeness to somebody else, neglects, the kindness that we've, already remember, that we've already received. It is really hard to remember gentleness and perfect courtesy when we're running late and there is somebody driving so slow in the left-hand lane on the interstate on their way to work. It is hard to remember that courtesy, especially when you spent four years driving in Massachusetts and everybody uses their horn just to say hello, you know. It is hard to remember that. It's hard to remember gentleness and perfect courtesy when a, a coworker messes up again after you have told them not to do it that way. And they drive you crazy again. It's hard to remember gentleness and perfect courtesy when your spouse, again, for the hundredth time, has done the thing you asked them not to do. It is hard to remember that. And yet here is, by the grace of God, a command to say, if you've received grace, then, then show grace to those around you. he says our our works are not just reactionary. When we have the opportunity, we we should also be actively seeking out opportunities to show this grace and kindness. If we receive the gospel, we should show that to others. Verse 14, let let, uh, our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Today we might call helping in cases of urgent need, charity, right? Like taking care of physical needs when you see it. Well, when you have opportunities to meet a need and you have the ability to do so, are you willing to be generous, even if it costs you something, to bless somebody else? Christians, uh, historians are able to look back on the early church and see that one of the main reasons that Christianity exploded in the first couple, year, couple hundred years, first 300 years or so uh, of after Christ, one of the things that they did that just blew everybody away is they cared for the sick and the poor when nobody else would. There was not a government structure to help take care of people that fall through the cracks. There was no safety net. And the church became that for so many people. We're grateful that our government helps us in this, but we shouldn't neglect our care for those who have needs around us. It's amazing when we have opportunities to show grace, and God has provided the means that we can do that. One of our mission partners, uh, the Watson family in Mexico, posted a video yesterday. That was so good. They, they came across this man who has been involved and connected with drugs basically his whole life and he is now homeless and he was living under this like concrete structure off the side of the road and their, their local pastors there came across this man and decided just to show him grace they raised the money and got together they built him a little house right there on top of that concrete structure so he doesn't have to live basically this little cave dirt thing that he was living in this man didn't earn it this man didn't make a profession of faith or donate a bunch of money to the ministry no he just said we want to help you and show you grace you have a need we can meet it, and we want to do it. Another mission partner, the Master's Mission, posted pictures yesterday, maybe that was this morning even, about food bags that they're sending out. And we've been a part of this now for uh, since last summer. One of the major things around the world in the developing world is the, the, the virus has affected the food chain, food supply. And so a lot of places just aren't able to get food. And so the Master's Mission is meeting physical needs. People are hungry, and they're giving them something to eat. So it looks like to be a Christian. And I get to watch it among all of you. Many of you have been sick or in the hospital, and you guys are so fast to bring a meal. You're so fast to care for one another and meet each other's needs. That is living out our faith. That is the gospel motivating good works. It's the fruit of the gospel. And he says in verse 8, It is excellent and profitable. It is a, a benefit to you when Christians show you love. It's a benefit to my stomach when you bring me a meal, you know? It's a, it's a blessing to other people. Profitable. Maybe that word, you kind of, that sounds like a negative thing, but it's in this case, he's saying whether a Christian or non Christian, if they know a Christian, it should be to their benefit that you're their friend. You want to be a blessing to other people. If you're a Christian, other people should be thankful they're your friend, whether or not they are a believer. We, we should be a, a blessing to our community. Our Fountain Inn, Simpsonville, Great Court, Lawrence, these places should be grateful that Infinity Church exists. They say, hey, the people there, they, they are a blessing to us. Not a burden, but a blessing to us. We want to be that for those around us because the gospel motivates good works. We should be profitable. We should be a blessing to those around us. So the first thing that comes from insisting on the gospel is that it leads to good works. And the opposite, it's kind of the, the, the next part of that, is the flip side of the same coin, right? So not only does the gospel motivate good works, but the gospel discourages foolish fighting. So if you do good, then you don't want to do bad, right? That's what's going on here. The gospel discourages foolish fighting. Verse 9, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they're unprofitable and worthless. So in verse 8, he said good works are profitable, but fighting is unprofitable. It doesn't help anybody if we just fight and quarrel all the time, right? Right? That wouldn't help anybody. That would be discouraging. Foolish fights, he says, are not beneficial. He's not saying that all disagreements are bad. Certainly other times we need to work through something and figure it out, theological understanding. We need to to wrestle with the text and understand God for who He is. We're all sinners, so we need to help one another see sin in each other's lives and, and help pull the planks and the specks out of your eyes like Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. So that's not that we all just always say positive things. But because of the gospel, we keep those things in perspective. We understand when there's disagreements and we're able to work through them because we all share the same foundation. The gospel keeps it in perspective. He's talking about foolish controversies. So he references quarrels, verse 2 and verse 9. These are things the false teachers are stirring up just to divide people. And you know what that's like. You know what it's like to be around people who just divide and they gossip and slander and whatever else, just to tear people apart. He says, "That's if you, if you know Jesus, if the gospel has transformed your life, you're, you're not going to live that way. You're not going to live that way wherever you go. He's talking about dissension, strife, discord, confrontations, disagreements that lead to divisions. And if we insist on the gospel, we keep the gospel first and foremost, then we don't have room for foolish fighting. Verse 2 says, we won't speak evil of other people. Our words are gentle. Our words are encouraging, not tearing each other's down. We, we all have the same goal, right? We're, we're all about the same team. We're all on the, on the same team. We, we applaud God. We glorify Him. We want to magnify God. And so we aren't going to let silly quarrels divide us. We're working together. There, there's a, a framework I've come... I don't, I don't know who, who first said this or came up with it. I can't find the origin of it. I think it's forever old. But you know how in the, uh, if you go to an ER... Uh, the way they figure out who gets treated first, they call it triage, right? Are you familiar with this? So if a heart attack, a broken arm, and a skin knee all come walking in the emergency room at the same time, they, they have a system for figuring out, hey, we probably should treat the heart attack before the skin knee. You know what I mean? Like they, they set priorities. Not all people who come in, you're, you're, how you present to the ER matters, right? Just because you have more money, if your, skin's, your knee's been skinned, doesn't mean you get treated first. They're going to treat the heart attack. Doesn't matter how much money you got, right? That's how. That's what should be done. So take that that kind of that framework, that philosophy, and bring that into the church. This theological triage, if you will. We we have to understand there are different levels, different categories of things we believe. And so I I give you kind of a, a first, second, and third tiers, first, second, and third levels of, of about what keeps us together. So that first tier, that top tier, that heart attack level. Uh, of triage for us as Christians are the things that anybody and everybody who's a Christian all around the world for all times and places should agree on if they're really a Christian. Things like we believe in one God and there is one God who shows himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And even if we don't fully get our minds around that, we all affirm that. We believe that God sent his son Jesus who died on a cross and salvation is only through believing in him that by grace we are saved. We, we, all Christians everywhere, who, people who are genuinely Christians, believe in the authority of God's word, that God has spoken this, and we follow this as, as this is how we know God, is through his word. Things like that are the top tier things. And if you have believed in that, if you trust in God, then it doesn't matter what kind of church you go to, what language you speak, what color you are, we are brothers and sisters in Christ, right? That's the top level of things. If you don't agree on that, we still love you. You're just not a Christian. like You just don't know God for who he is. Okay? But then there's a second tier of things that, hey, we're still Christians, but we're probably not going to worship in the same local believers, same body of believers. For example, I grew up in a Methodist church. We are a Baptist church. That's not on our name, on our sign, you know, but we, we are part of a Baptist family. And so we choose, we believe the best way interpreting Scripture is that we baptize people after they make a profession of faith. And the way we do it is by submerging them of water to represent how Christ came died, was buried, and then resurrected. That's how we do baptism. The Methodist church I grew up in sprinkles water and does it, is willing to do that on infants. And we say, hey, we disagree about that. And so we're going to do church a little differently. But you're still my brother. You're still my sister in the Lord. We, we agree on the top tier. And the bottom tier, doesn't, the second tier, doesn't mean that we're not friends. We just do church a little differently. And that's okay. And so you may be different places, but one family, still all together. And then there's a third tier of things that we can disagree about even within this room and still work together as Christians within the same faith family. So just one theological example is that there are about a million different beliefs about how the end times are going to go. I don't know if you know that or not, but we we have some things we agree. Christ is coming back and he's going to make all things right. There's going to be a final resurrection. But how and when, exactly how it's going to happen, you can read as many opinions out there as there are people in the world. And you know what? That's okay. We can still all sit here together and worship first tier second tier third tier theological triage and here's why that's important he's talking about things that divide us if, if we got all the things at the top together and even the second tier of things there is no reason we can't be all together as one family right we so often in the church forget how much we have in common it can be easy for churches especially as you go on year after year and you forget we share 99% of things in common And you know what? This year, this little thing, I tell you, we're going to burn them all, right, in a year or whenever we're done with it because there's been so many fights about this. Like, this is like fifth tier, you know? Like, this isn't even in the Bible. We're just trying to figure out how to live as Christians in this world. We got so much in common. Let's stay together. We're a family. We want to be unified, not fighting over foolish things. We as Christians are meant to be unified and to display that to the world. Listen, if the world looking in says, hey, the church is just as divided as we are, they yell and scream and argue just like we do, why would they have any reason to be a part of our family? But when we display love and kindness and grace and mercy, when we are all unified about what really matters, then man, that's so appealing to the world. The world doesn't know what to do with that. The world doesn't know what to to do with people who come from different backgrounds and different races and different socioeconomic statuses who are willing to come together and worship the same God. That doesn't happen apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Unity in the church is so important. He says, don't let foolish fighting be divisive. It will only happen if our foundation, the core, the thing that's all laid on top of is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Insisting on the gospel motivates us for good and discourages foolish fighting. There's one more thing the gospel, believes. the gospel motivates us to do. It inspires generous partnerships. It inspires generous partnerships. We should be inspired by the gospel. That is, so motivated by it, so lit on fire by it, that we want to share it generously with other people. The gospel is what God did for us. We get no credit God gets all the credit, so there is no room for being territorial or, or, or saying this is my thing, right? We just said we got first-tier things in common with every Christian around the world. I want every church in Fountain Inn and Simpsonville and Great Court and, and Lawrence to flourish. I want them all to flourish. And if you people come to me from different churches, I'm like, hey, I want your church to do great. Yeah, if you're a part of our family, great. If you're a part of that, I don't, we're all on the same team, right? We want to generously and all to collectively work together we've received freely we want to give freely you can get to the end of these letters in the new testament and it can be feel like you're reading somebody's diary sometimes there's people's names that are hard to pronounce and you got all these different people going different places and it can be easy to just kind of throw them away but but listen to these because they teach us so much for one it teaches us these are real people in real times some real places right but also even beyond that notice how all these people are working together Man, if you study the Bible and you think about Paul, the apostle, and you think about, man, this guy was just like really up there. Surely there was nobody in his category. Man, he is, he is so generous. here, people, all kinds of people, all working together for the same good. So listen to the partnerships. See, this is Paul writing to Titus. So that's one partnership that's working together. But it's not just a two-man show. They're not on an island by themselves. Verse 12, Paul says he is sending two other people, Artemis and Titicus, to Titus. And they're kind of like the relief pitcher coming in. Titus, you're wearing out. Let me send you some help. And you come to me. We'll trade out. And so they go and work there, right? Verse 13, there's another partnership. He talks about sending out two men, Zenos and Apollos. And so they're going to some other place. And Paul says, ask Titus and the church at Crete to support them. I want you to hear about this. This is a, 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 an island, a little bitty island, few churches. They're brand new. And what are they already doing? They're already supporting other churches. It would be so easy for Titus and the people at Crete to say, whoa, 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 we can't send money elsewhere. We, we can't send people to go spread the gospel elsewhere. We got lost people in our own backyard. We got urgent needs right here. We can't, we can't afford to go send other places. And Paul's saying, hey, hey, it's never too early to start supporting missions other places. You're ne- it's never impossible. You can always find a way to pray, to send, support, things outside your own walls. Because when the church gets inwardly focused, it dies. Well, We're called to be sending out. He says, yes, minister where you are. Yes, support ministry where you are, but also send it out. We, we try to live this out as a church, ministering here in our backyard, but not just here, but around the world. And I, call you, I invite you to personally follow that same example. And notice he says, see, they lack nothing. He says, don't, don't just send them out with a, a banana and a pat on the back and say, hey, Good look, man, like James too, he says, you see somebody in need, don't just, don't just say, I'll pray for you, you know, meet, meet the need, right? And so he says, see that they lack nothing. Be generous in your missions and ministry support. We're coming along, so the, the Cook family is praying about God's calling on their life, and there's gonna be an opportunity, I think, probably in the next year or so for us to send them out. I wanna send them out generously to say, hey, God's called you to the mission field. We, we want you to see that you lack nothing in your ministry. When we insist on the gospel, will be devoted to the right things. Man, this is such a beautiful picture of the church. People who got the foundation right. They believed in the gospel. It led to good works. It discouraged any kind of foolish fighting. They got false teachers. Pull them out of there, right? And anything that's good and right, it leads to to a generous partnership with other people. That is a beautiful picture of the gospel at work. People that got the foundation right. So as we come to the end of the book of Titus, as we come to the end of this sermon series we've been going through together, I just wonder if you could step back and say, how is is God asking you to respond in this? What does it look like for you to respond to the gospel and to his word today? So we've been walking through Titus and I wonder, is it the sound doctrine? Is it the being zealous for good works or is it both together that God is inviting you to say, hey. Where do I need to respond to this in a unique way? Maybe, maybe there's a, a sin that you need to repent of, that you're not following the Lord in obedience. Maybe it's causing division or, or still living in your old foolish ways, disobedient ways. Maybe, maybe God is challenging you in a fresh way about what it means to live in the gospel. Maybe God's inspiring you to a certain partnership in ministry, to be sharing your faith. In a new way. Maybe God's speaking to you for the very first time. You see, as we lay out the gospel week in and week out here, I'm confident there are people who hear that and don't yet believe. Especially now that we're online. Maybe you're joining us online and and you've never put your faith in Jesus. Or maybe you're here today and you've never put your faith in Jesus. Today is a day where you can say, "I I want to know what that's about. I want to know what it means to believe in Jesus. It simply means this, all of us are broken, all of us are sinful, all of us need a Savior. And no matter who you are or where you come from, Jesus says, I I am that Savior for you. I am that Savior for you. Maybe God is pulling on your life today in such a way that you say, "I, I don't fully understand this yet, but I know I need Him. I know I need Him. Today, I, I, as we, we've spent seven or so weeks, I think it is, through this book, and I've just been so challenged by it. And I just felt God pulling us this week to say, hey, let's pause for a moment and think, what, what does God really want me to do? Do, do I really believe the gospel? Is, is the gospel the foundation of my life? If not, then, then we need to, to come back to that over and over again and say, how does, how does this work? If you do believe the gospel, is it changing the way you live? Is it actually transforming your life? Then then believe that. Lean into that. Let let God change you for who you are. We ask that in these final moments today that that you would let God speak into your life. That you would let Him call you to follow Him. Either for the first time or in a new way. So before we pray, I want you to go ahead and stand with Ask you just to say, what's God leading you to do today? How is God asking you to respond to the gospel? Is he asking you to turn a, a specific sin over? And as we talk about foolish controversies or good works, you're saying, I'm not, I'm not following the Lord like I'm supposed Maybe you need to lay that sin down today. Maybe you need to come to the altar and, and just lay it before Him. Maybe when we think about good works, you say, there's, there's a need I see that I'm not meeting that I should be meeting. Maybe today that's how you want to respond to the gospel. Or maybe for the first time you want to say, I, I believe, I believe. Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful to be able to worship you today. God, I pray especially over our believers who are with us today in person and online. Father, all of us recognize we are not perfect, we are sinners, and we need to repent. So God, we confess that sin before you now. Father, we want to name that sin before you and say, God, this is how I'm not following you. Father, we know that if we just try to change our own hearts, it will never happen. So God, we come to you today and we, we trust in your power, not our own. God, change our hearts, transform us, help us to believe that you have died for our sin and you have put it in the grave and we have been resurrected out of that grave that you have given us new life. We don't have to walk in that sin anymore. God, by your power, may we be free. God, by that that same power, I pray that we would walk in the newness of life. God, if you're leading us to obey you, in a specific way that we haven't been doing, if there's a way that we're supposed to be following you and loving our neighbor, loving one another, then God, I pray, God, I pray that we would follow you today. God, now I especially pray over anybody who is here today or watching online who does not know you personally. God, maybe they're here today and they're just unsure about what that means. They're unsure if they they do know you at all. God, I pray that for the first time or the first time that they they understand it, God, somehow, God, that they would turn their life over to you. That they would turn away from sin and trust in you. God, may they know your great love for us. God, may they see the the links that you went through to show that love to us in your son. May they see your need for a savior. May they see that they can only find that... I want to give you just another moment in prayer before the band begins to sing and ask you to respond to him. and if you don't yet know the Lord I, I invite you to pray with me now maybe you, you don't know how to pray you just haven't uh, you're not sure what to pray so if you don't know him I, I just want to maybe, you can, maybe you'll follow me in prayer maybe you'll let these words be your words. And you can pray something like this. God, I'm here today and I feel you drawing me to you. God, I hear the good news that you love me and you want me to know you. God, I admit I am broken. I'm sinful. I don't deserve you. So please forgive me, Lord. God, save me. God, I know that's only possible because you sent your son, Jesus, who died on the cross for me and was raised to new life. I believe in him today, and God, I trust you above all. Amen. Amen. As you continue to respond to the Lord today, if you've never prayed that, you want to pray that, if you just prayed that, if you want to come talk to me now or after the service or find somebody and say, I, 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 think, I think I'm ready to be a believer ready to be a Christian today. Maybe if you're online, you want to reach out some way and say, God, I I need you. We we would love to be a part of that uh, for you and for your life. But I just ask that as we've spent time studying the gospel deeply, that you would not be unchanged. That The gospel would be at work in your life in such a way that you'll be transformed because it has the power to change everything. Let's sing. Let's worship.